I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Welcome back to the broadcast, folks. This is uh, Michael Patton. I am coming to you from the Credo House, and I am joined in the studio with Sam Storms. Sam Storms. <laughs> And Tim Kimberly. I often talk to people who study. Yeah. They uh, hear our S's are uh, pretty bad right now. Hopefully we'll have a condenser by next yeah. time. So that we'll right. condense the S's. Um, but uh, welcome to those of you who are joining us. We thank you for joining us each week for these broadcasts. These are unique broadcasts that we hope contribute in a different way to uh, to uh, your theological understanding and contribute in a positive way to your growth and development in our Lord, and that uh, these these will um, encourage you every week. We don't want to do these just as merely an academic thing, but we do understand how important the understanding and the wrestling with things are um, uh, to the Lord. I, I think that uh, helping people to walk strong theologically is so incredibly important, but Oftentimes, I think we have to help them to walk with a theological limp as well. And that is the wrestling match that we have to get into in theological issues. And they're not just with the issues themselves, they're with the Lord. And I think that uh, whenever we talk about this subject we're going to continue to talk about today here, Roman Catholicism, I hope that you guys are entering into a wrestling match. Um, I hope that everybody that ends up listening to this broadcast and leaving this broadcast is uh, strengthened as evangelical Protestants, as I am. Not, don't know that uh, you necessarily will be at the end, but I hope that you are. But I hope more than anything else that you that you come to this with sincerity and you're you're truly seeking the Lord. And guys, that's what we try to do each week is try to let people in on conversations that are going on and hopefully un, in an unplugged way wrestle with this these things right tim that's right yep you know we want i think uh at first you kind of just want nice clean just give me the i don't want any gray just give me the black and white issues and i think the lord just uh puts us in places where we really have to struggle through things you know we recognize that the world's a little bit more complex our god is a little bit more complex and we actually need him we actually need the spirit of god working in our lives and uh, we need him to illuminate us and uh, and I think we need to do the due diligence of entering into these things and not just stay on the periphery where it might look like it's all nice and clean, but to enter into these things and really wrestle through these issues. Sam, we talked last week about the sameness or the, the things that we have in common among Protestants and e- Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics, the three big traditions mm-hmm. of uh, church history. I think that uh, you would agree with me. Uh, we haven't talked about this uh, explicitly before, but you would agree with me that all three of these traditions represent legitimate expressions of Christianity in some significant way, right? Yeah, I think I would be okay with that terminology. Um, I think that if you want to speak of them um, comparatively, instead of... Uh, absolute uh, accuracy versus complete error. We would say, at least we, I know uh, those of us at this table, would that evangelicalism within the Protestant tradition is the most biblical and accurate portrayal of the Christian faith um, that, that we know of. Um, 
and that Catholicism and Orthodoxy are less biblically faithful in certain significant ways. Uh, so it's a, it's a comparison, uh, it seems to me, uh, rather than saying all or nothing, as some would say, where they would uh, contend that uh, Roman Catholicism is a non-Christian religion of an altogether different order, and that anybody who affirms uh, or is a, a, a part of the Roman Catholic Church is by definition, therefore, unsaved and destined for eternal damnation, or they'd say the same thing of Eastern Orthodoxy. And we're certainly not, um, at least I'm not, anywhere near uh, affirming that. I have, I have some acquaintances and people I know of who are um, I would call evangelical Roman Catholics. Now, I know that there are some who are listening to us who might say, wait a minute, that's a contradiction in terms. If you're evangelical, by definition, you can't be Roman Catholic and vice versa. And I think as we proceed through this, um, that, that's an issue that we're going to have to unpack in, in greater detail with great care. And there's a guy that comes in the Credo House, too, that I, I think I would be comfortable calling him an evangelical Eastern Orthodox uh, in a certain sense, too. And, uh, and yeah, I think that... Uh, I think it's good to, uh, you know, in some ways, too, it's you can't just uh, put uh, a straw man up and say this is what everyone inside of this church mm-hmm. believes, you know. And, and we're, we will get to where we say, well, this is what the magisterium, this is doctrine, this is dogma, this is very clear that this is what the church teaches and believes. Uh, but, uh, you know, there are definitely, are you, there are clearly people inside of both of those that have a, a great, passionate love for Christ. Yeah, you know, let me just give two examples. And, this, and the reason I can do this because these people are very much in the public um, domain, as it were. There's a book that came out this year that I highly recommend. It's called Journeys of Faith. I don't know if you guys have seen mm-hmm. it. It's a story where of individuals who have gone from being Protestant to Roman Catholic or, conversely, Catholic to Protestant, the same way in terms of Eastern Orthodoxy. And two of the figures uh, in this book, uh, one of them is Wilbur Ellsworth. Uh, Wilbur was pastor of the First Baptist Church of Wheaton. Mm-hmm right a couple of blocks away from the college. And uh, um, he started another church there in Wheaton, and I preached at it on several occasions. Wilbur is now a full-fledged, I don't know how you'd exactly put it, Eastern Orthodox priest and has been ordained within the, the Orthodox Church and has a, a, a congregation there in the, uh, in the Chicago suburbs. Uh, and then another gentleman that you all know of is Francis Beckwith, who was president of the Evangelical Theological Society, he's a professor at Baylor University, who was Protestant and who's now converted to Catholicism. And uh, I've, I know Wilbur well, and I know um, of Francis Beckwith and read many of his books, and I don't have any hesitation whatsoever in saying both of these men are born-again believers in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Now, somebody might say, yeah, but they're the exception mm-hmm. rather than the rule. Well, maybe in some respects, but... It, it, it's it's individuals like that that we know and love and, and have good relationship with and know their hearts um, that that would cause us to be reluctant to, to to wipe away any possibility that there are genuine believers within these two expressions of the Christian faith. And it's hard. And the reason why we, we want to talk about this and say this is because sometimes whenever we are Protestants and the old definition of uh, you are a good Protestant, Protestant to the degree that you are a hater of Roman Catholics. Yeah. Uh, we don't want to just say, "Well, you know, we we just want all roads to lead to the same place as long as you say you love Jesus," because we are trying to say 
that we're not putting this this in the same category as, say, Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, who I think all of us would say very clearly, this is a cult organization with cult beliefs that depart from absolute central issues, cardinal beliefs of historic Christian faith. We do see those and uh, put those that organization outside of any sense of being called Christian. Whereas the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox, it's different. And that's why I want to say, um, I think I personally would not place Roman Catholic anywhere near the realm of cult. Yeah, I, I wouldn't either. And I think, I think a good way to view cult is, first of all, that they claim to be Christian. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you wouldn't say that, uh, that just some random new age group is a cult because they're not claiming to be Christian. But then, in addition to claiming to be Christian, they disown or disbelieve what we would say is a central element of the faith, something like the resurrection or the Trinity or uh, issues of Christology with Jesus or, or situations with the Bible or uh, how much we really need a Savior, views of mankind. What we'd say historically were the issues that the church has really fought for over the course of several hundred years. Uh, what we would say is the reason that I would say Roman Catholic is not a cult is because they affirm, basically what we talked about last time, they affirm those most essential elements of the faith. The person and work of Christ. Exactly, where both a Jehovah's Witness and Mormons do not. And and there would be central parts of the faith that they would deny. And of course, this is a point of dispute that we're, we need to address, is that uh, many would take issue with that. They would say, but wait a minute, yes, they affirm Trinitarianism, deity of Christ, bodily resurrection, but doesn't Roman Catholicism deny the essence of the gospel? Uh, doesn't their view of the Mass undermine the uh, finality and sufficiency of the work of Christ? Or doesn't their view of justification bring works into uh, um, the issue of salvation in such a way that they find themselves, if not intentionally doing so, uh, necessarily uh, Undermining the essence of the gospel itself. So those are big issues we're going to have to yeah. take up. Well, let's talk about those issues. Let's talk about, I guess, let's do a shotgun effect on the issues that we disagree about, just like we did a shotgun on the issues that we agreed about last week, and then talk about how we're going to you know, deal with these each individually throughout the coming broadcast. So it's open. open. Gates are open. Let's talk about uh, what do we disagree about. I think uh, out of the gun uh, issues around the Pope, the Pope being the uh, sole authority, or you could add include the magisterium there as well, uh, basically having a person on earth that speaks uh, something on behalf of God uh, that is uh, it, it trickles down all the way down to the to the bottom people uh, we would we would reject that we but would you said soul that. authority they don 't believe he 's the sole authority no no but but an authority no because they would say you know that god 's authority and stuff like that, but uh, that, that the Pope though is an authority. Uh, that they definitely bow under in a sense that that we wouldn't infallibility. That we would, yeah. yeah, yeah, they would. Uh, they don't. Contrary to what Protestants think, they don't affirm that the Pope is sinless. Yeah, <laughs> you can't yeah. read church history and, and maintain that doctrine exactly. very long. Um, nor do they affirm that he's infallible every time he opens his mouth. Yeah. What they say is that when the church, when the the Bishop of Rome speaks, what they call ex cathedra, which means from the chair of Peter in apostolic succession and does so in conjunction with the College of Cardinals that anything he says on matters of faith and morals is infallible. Uh, And of course, we would disagree with that. We don't believe that God has 
guaranteed or promised any individual in any expression of Christianity that um, they will speak theologically um, uh, infallible truth. So we would definitely disagree with them on the Pope in that regard. Issues of Mary, Mariology, we call it sometimes. There's going to be something that stands out. I talk to a lot of Protestants and uh, or, or uh, Catholics even sometimes who are what I call Catholic, what are sometimes called cafeteria Catholics. They say, yeah, I'm a Catholic, but I don't do the Mary stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so what, let's talk about just real quickly. By the way, we are, are we not, Michael, going to revisit each of these in separate programs, Yeah. devote perhaps an entire program to the Pope, uh, devote an entire one to the area of Mariology. Yeah. Uh, but within the subject of Mary, things like uh, the Roman Catholic Church affirms the Immaculate Conception of Mary. They believe she was conceived without original sin. Um, Which I think most Protestants think that that re- refers to Jesus. Right. But it doesn't. It refers to Mary being sinless in in order uh, from original sin in order to not uh, pass on that to Jesus. Right. And then many Catholics, um, and this is a, uh, an interesting, this is a questionable point. Many of them believe that Mary lived a sinless life. Now, that's not official Catholic dogma, but many Catholics believe that. Then there's the perpetual virginity of Mary, the notion that she remained a virgin throughout the course of her life, and therefore Jesus did not have any half-brothers or half-sisters. Which is one of the earliest ones uh, of the doctrines of Mariology that comes into the church, and even Martin Luther affirmed the perpetual virginity of Mary. Most of the Reformers did. Mm-hmm. Then there is the uh, the notion of the bodily assumption of Mary, that either, and there are differences here, either she didn't die physically and was taken immediately into heaven, or immediately after she died, she was taken into heaven and glorified, and therefore her body did not undergo decay. And the whole idea of that is if she didn't have original sin, there's no reason for her to experience the suffering of original sin, which is ultimately death. Right. And then, of course, the notion that Mary, in in some capacity, stands ready and accessible to us, and we can appeal to her, and she can, in some sense, dispense the blessings of her son to the saints upon the earth. Uh, so those are just some, and there are several more, but those are some of the things relating to Mary. Mariology, we'll have a whole section, uh, session devoted to that. Uh, what about the saints? Um, the I guess you would say prayers to the dead would be probably a more of a general statement here rather than just the saints and the communion of the saints because... The communion of the saints is going to be an interesting topic that we get into that I think is greatly neglected within mm-hmm. Protestantism, but the communion of the saints as how it extends in both Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy to where the, the, the saints stand ready in the sense of that they're kind of like our angels. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. We can well, pray to them. And because they have access to God in a way that we don't because they're in heaven. Yeah. And so I think that there's this idea of like, well, uh, and that that yes, I'm I'm not. I know that God's a part of this, so I'm not saying. Well, instead of God, I'm praying to the saint. But it's more you're praying to the saint, and then the saint is taking it to God on your behalf. Prayers to saints. A lot of people would see that as saint worship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, somewhat related to that is the issue of purgatory. Uh, Roman Catholics believe that uh, when let's just say an average Christian and. Dies that they do not go into the immediate presence of Christ, that they enter into um, an intermediate stage uh, called purgatory where they must endure some measure of suffering and purging of the sin and sanctifying beyond what they experienced here on earth. And uh, this is in order to prepare them for entering into the presence of, of, of Christ. And associated with purgatory, 
uh, are things such as um, I. In fact, I'll bring it uh, at one of when we talk about this. I've got a little card because I actually co-officiated a wedding in a Roman Catholic church, uh, which maybe we should talk about that as well. Um, but these I want to were, talk about it, the priest that let you. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. <laughs> this was uh, these cards were dispensed at the front of the church, and it had a picture of Jesus with his heart, as it were, very prominent and red and blood dripping from it. On the other side, it had the name of an individual who had died when they were born, when they died. And there was a prayer where we were to pray to Jesus, asking him to um, relieve the anguish of this particular person in purgatory and bring them into his presence. So this notion that we can, by things we do on earth, diminish the time that a person spends in purgatory. And that brings up the whole subject of indulgences, which is... Uh, things that you do now will diminish your time in purgatory and also that of your deceased relatives. And some Protestants think that uh, purgatory was uh, came to an end after the Protestant Reformation. It did not. Mm. Uh, now, it was, it was refined <laughs> uh, much because of the protest of Luther, but purgatory is still very much in the Catholic Catechism. You can read the section on it. Mm. So that's another issue. Um, speaking of that... Those cards. Mm-hmm. I wonder if uh, we can get overnight prints to do some for us, just for just in case, you know, for like fundraising purposes or well, something. I don't know. I'm just thinking, just in case, for me personally, you know, it's a like for you to have a card for for me to have a card upon my death. You know how like upon my death, this yeah, card will be this, this card just, will be unmanned upon the rapture. Yeah, I'm thinking just bad upon idea. my death, distribute these cards widely. Folks, folks, forgive yeah. them. They're they're wandering madly yeah. away from. Okay, what about uh, the issue of the sacraments? Uh, sacraments, big time. I mean, we've got uh, the. Uh, I mean, just the whole idea that you have to go to someone to confess your sins. I think is a big deal for many of us as Protestants. We say, I don't go to a priest to confess my sins, and I don't go into those little boxes where you open up a window and the priest is sitting on the other side. And I don't think you have to do that. That's a big deal. That's part of. That's part of the uh, seven sacraments. Well, the notion, the very notion that the priest, by his words of absolution, is what it's called, can dispense grace to you mm-hmm. through that and um, also can, in fact, uh, pre- uh, require you to perform acts of penance, uh, you know, service to the poor, giving uh, uh, money to those in need, uh, serving the church in various ways, all of which is designed... Um, to diminish or to rid you of uh, the, uh, a measure of guilt in your sin and also to reduce your time in purgatory. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole notion of the sacraments, uh, the Catholic Church believes that uh, grace is actually dispensed through the sacraments. Um, if, if you want grace, whether it's the grace for forgiveness or the, uh, the grace that comes through the cross of Christ, this has been, in a, in a sense, entrusted to the priest who dispenses that through the sacraments. And it's not the priest's grace, it's God's grace. Right. So if you are, are seeking relief for your soul and uh, you know a gracious God to uh, to give you mercy, 
that you're seeing that that my priest is responsible and has given the 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 authority to dispense that grace to me as as he deems fit based on me living according to the sacraments. Yeah. What, a, what an incredible thing that it is to try. I'm sitting here thinking about this as we're y'all you're going through all yours, and I'm going, how do we cover this in one session and and make sure that we've covered the right things beforehand? Because you're talking about a whole system of meritorious or. Uh, uh, what do we? What do they call it? Uh, works of super irrigation, mm-hmm. uh, above and beyond that Christ performed, and now the church stands between. And this whole system of sacraments, how essential it is to understand in order for you to ever think you're going to get a grasp on the Roman Catholic Church. Well, you just raised another one: the whole issue of the treasury of merit. Uh, the Catholics believe that certain individuals, such as Jesus and certain saints, Mary and others can build up a surplus of good deeds that are, in a sense, reserved or set aside in heaven, and that you and I, through doing certain uh, good deeds on earth or saying certain prayers, can access that treasury and have their merits applied to our lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a huge thing. Mm-hmm. And, and with regard to the sacraments, we have to talk about baptism, because the Roman Catholic Church believes that when an infant is baptized within the Roman Catholic Church, that the guilt of original sin is washed away. Which is an interesting thing because we, along with Roman Catholics, hold to original guilt, or we call this the imputation of Adam's sin, whereas the Eastern Orthodox don't, but the Roman Catholics deal with it by removing it at at uh, the baptism, which is necessary to have in order for you to to enter into eternal life because you've got to get Adam's sin removed from you. And so that's a specific act that you have to have. And what, a, what an incredibly complex thing it does get into whenever you talk about baptism of desire and you talk about what about babies in the womb that haven't been baptized and what is the Catholic Church uh, able to pull off with regard to getting them covered because you have to have Adam's sin removed from you. So it gets very complex. And then, of course, uh, the Eucharist. By the way, just for our Protestant listeners, uh, the word Eucharist is not a Roman Catholic term. It gets, comes from the Greek verb Eucharisteo, which means to give thanks. And Protestants can use the word Eucharist. Uh, but the Lord's Supper and the whole concept of transubstantiation, the notion that when the priest utters the words, hocest corpus meum, this is my body, that it's believed when he says est or is, that there is a miracle in which the the bread and the wine are literally transformed into the literal body and blood of Jesus. And uh, in conjunction with that is the whole notion of the sacrifice of the Mass, what is actually happening. Um, uh, There's a lot of confusion on that. Some people argue that the Catholics are affirming that Jesus is re-crucified every time that occurs. Well, they're not arguing that. They believe that he's being represented to us in his original crucifixion. But it does raise the question about... Do they believe in the finality and absolute sufficiency of the historic once and for all crucifixion and death of Jesus? And just to add a little spin to that that I don't know if we'll get into, but I'll I'll make us get into it. The implications of Chalcedon upon the mast where you do have the communication of the attribute of omnipresence being communicated to the the humanity of Christ so that the humanity of Christ can be at multiple places at one time and what what does that do to Chalcedon and uh, what what an interesting thing that uh, that this just all, all whenever whenever you have all of these different things you have to solve so many problems that will bring up mm-hmm. but we haven't even talked about 
salvation by faith alone or yeah, justification, justification by faith. Yeah. yeah. Because, again, we can spend at least a whole session on that one. Um, mm. Protestants typically affirm that justification refers to the forensic or legal declaration by God that the believing sinner is reckoned righteous in Christ, that the righteousness of Christ, which is external or alien to us, is reckoned or imputed to us uh, when we put our trust and our confidence in him. The Roman Catholic Church says no justification is the actual experiential transformation inwardly that is expressed through works throughout the course of your life. So what you and I would probably call sanctification the Roman Catholic Church would refer to as justification. They would collapse the two into one. Hmm. And then that raises the question of, well, what role then do our good works play hmm. in our acceptance before God? We've got lots of different issues that we've got to mm-hmm. talk about. <clears throat> now, let me ask you guys this. What about this one, Michael, before we go any further? Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm holding up the Bible. <laughs> the whole issue of authority. See, I believe that happens to be the single greatest issue of all. Well, that was going to be my next question. Oh, wow. We're well, what, what are the what, what are the issues that you guys can get rid of? I mean, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. We're probably going to get really excited about a lot of this stuff that, yeah. that I can see as, as, as we began to even broach some of these subjects. But to set it all aside and say, what are the things that you think, or, or no, let me put it this way. Let's say the Reformation hasn't happened yet, and okay. we're, we're dealing with this right now. We're talking about it among this table, and you know we're part of still the institutionalized church, and we're all still called one Catholic. What are the things that you can't deal with that you think maybe we still need to have a Reformation? Is the Reformation over? Should it have happened? Is it something that, um, as some people say, well, maybe we we overreacted? Mm. What are the key issues that you guys think, if you think the Reformation should have happened, what are the key issues? I I doubt it's praying to the saints. Yeah, it's not uh, uh, the celibacy of the clergy. Yeah. You know, the, the priests have to remain unmarried. Um, it's it's not even some aspects of Mary. Uh, the idea of her immaculate conception, although I, I think it's wrong, isn't heretical. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You know some of the some of the other sacraments. I mean, they believe in the, the that marriage is a sacrament, that ordination is a sacrament, that uh, that extreme unction is a sacrament, confirmation. I don't, but I, be, I I believe in most of those things as Christian practices. I would start with the issue of authority of, of what ultimately is the revelation of God by which all truth has to be measured, and of course that brings in the whole issue of uh, sola scriptura. And by the way, when we talk about it, I think all of us are going to agree that that's probably not the best way of putting it. The word sola communicates something that we do not intend. And that we're continually having to press back against in order to retain some type of orthodoxy ourselves. But, But the issue really is, I think it comes down to this, when we talk about these particular doctrines, these issues, we're going to come back time and time and time again. Where is that in the Bible? And the Roman Catholic is going to come back and say, doesn't have to be in the Bible. As long yeah. as the Bible doesn't contradict it, if tradition has affirmed it, if it's found in the ecumenical councils, if the Holy Father with the cardinals has concluded that it's true, as long as it's not contradicted by Scripture, it can, in fact, be required as a fundamental belief. 
most yeah. important thing, Sam, Sola Scriptura, Tim, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I totally side with Sam on that. I mean, because that is, that's where you're going to, I mean, that's kind of your launching pad, and that's where you keep coming back to. And so that's, uh, you know, you can end up talking about two different things, and you're, uh, I mean, you, you got to have a common source that you're drawing from. So, so I agree. I, I think that coming to that term would be first. Uh, then, uh, but I think uh, like justification by faith is is going to be a close second. You know, I mean, I think, Very close, I think yeah. with the Bible agreed upon, then justification by faith is the next thing we talk about. And and I think also, Michael, what we will discover is that if I can put it this way, I think many of these issues we've raised will collectively feel like it's undermining the uh, sola gratia by grace alone. In other words, when you start talking about purgatory, you think, wait a minute, why is there a need for purgatory if Christ, uh, as an expression of the grace of God in salvation, has fully and finally dealt with the issue of sin? Why do I still need to suffer before I can gain uh, entrance into his presence? So a lot of these issues, as as they kind of cumulatively build, are going to make people begin to say, you know, what point is... Uh, the gospel itself and the whole concept of grace being eroded. Yeah, which, I mean, I think that what we'll talk about there, uh, that's something that isn't just a Protestant Roman Catholic issue because, I mean, within different branches of Protestantism, even you have different ways of looking at salvation and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so so kind of coming to terms with, with what is the what are things that you truly have to hold to to have salvation? I think Sam, whenever you're talking about it from a uh, from a scriptural standpoint or solo scripture, you're saying you got to get this settled first. Mm-hmm. It may not be the thing that I uh, like. We would say grace and and faith alone, but if you don't have that uh, some type of place where you can all go to and agree upon, then then all these other things are just going to continue to get messed up. Yeah, I mean, so so we're guys, so let's use a sports illustration, right? That if, if you have a, a football game and you're you're talking about, well, should the referee should have called this call or this call in this situation, you first have to agree on a rule book. Yeah. You know, if you have two people using two different rule books or one rule book that has a whole bunch of other things, then it ultimately you're going to end back at the rule book. And uh, it really doesn't matter talking about an individual play until you have the rule book yeah. sound. Yeah. Right. So, so, again, if we can extend that into today's situation, yeah. if the officials on the field are using one rule book and the replay official up in the booth is using a different one, yeah. we're going to have some problems. We're going to yeah. have a, some serious delays in the game here. Yeah. And uh, we do have to agree ultimately on what is our final authority. Yeah. Well, then let's start next week. And who knows how long this will go, but let's, let's take it one piece at a time and talk about authority. Mm-hmm. We don't just start with just saying, uh, you know, the scripture itself, but the whole concept of authority and how, what it is that we believe, what it is that the Roman Catholics believe and how this developed within history and how uh, maybe we can get to the same rule book if, uh, if at all possible, which obviously we don't, we're not solving anything here, but to give people an understanding of uh, that rule book. What do you think? That sounds, sounds good. good. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll continue this next time, folks. Uh, we thank you for joining us each week. It is, uh, again, our pleasure to to bring to you uh, into this wrestling match, and we pray that it has been a wrestling match, and pray that um, um, you are further equipped to glorify God through your thoughts and through your beliefs, and, and this uh, moves its way into your lives and conviction that you uh, leave each day saying not only that you believe, but you really believe. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged, 
visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes Store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Credo House Ministries. Theology Unplugged is a listener-supported ministry. If you have enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For more information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of valuable resources, visit us on the web at credohouse.org. It is our sincere hope that you believe more deeply today than you did yesterday. Thank you for listening.